You can't pick the rural juror on a technicality. In honor of a pigeon sat on a branch reflecting on existence, what's your favorite silly movie title? Oh, I also go first, because <laughs> Katie's not here this week. Aww. I'm Dave with the Seven, and I'm going to go with the same answer a 12-year-old me would give and pick James Bond's Octopussy. I'm Matt Patches, and because I keep like waking up in the middle of the night uttering four to myself, I'm going to go with four. Rise of the Silver Surfer. And I'm David Ehrlich, and I'm going to go with a little movie I like to call Ballistic X versus Sever. Originally just X versus Sever. Yeah, but but then it, they made it more ballistic. Ballistic! Gentlemen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Fine, I can hear you now, Dimitri. Clear and plain and coming through fine. I'm coming through fine too, eh? Good, then, well then, as you say, we're both coming through fine. Good. Well, it's good that you're fine then, and I'm fine. I agree with you, it's great to be fine. It's, it's a podcast. podcast. Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room number 73 for Tuesday, June 2nd, 2015. And I'll even do Katie's thing and call it the year of our Time Lord, Dr. Emmett Brown. As you can tell, Katie Rich, not here, um, actually in the middle of the Grand Canyon. So if Somewhere. you're near the Grand Canyon, say hello. Go, go look for her. She's probably seeing movies there, right? They probably have a movie theater, like a multiplex down at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. That'd be cool. <laughs> they I just picture her, America. Like, yeah, frantically clinging to some sort of donkey as it descends the steep canyon walls. <laughs> How poetic. Uh, yeah, so, and we do not have any more reviews to read, unfortunately. But I feel like there's pe- there are people out there ready to grill us or champion us. Who knows? Actually, I got both types of reactions last week after uh, heralding the, uh, the the Phantom Menace. Some people were very angry, and some people were, you know, happy that I, I went there. Um, either of children, those opinions. Children defended you? Yeah, maybe they're, maybe they're children. They're actually the children from the Jedi Council in the Phantom Menace. Um, the young both ones. of those opinions are valid, and they, yeah. should be, they should be written about on fighting in the war rooms itunes page so go there please we we would love your thoughts positive or negative star ratings the whole nine yards do it i saw him slaughtering younglings (laughs) ewan mcgregor said that perfectly too you bet he did So, what could be more appropriate to talk about on this all-bro week of fighting in the war room than a little movie I like to call Entourage, (laughs) colon, the film. Yeah, yeah! Yeah, yeah! Dave? Yeah, yeah! Yeah, yeah! I will have you know, because this will be going up after the embargo for this film breaks at 2 a.m. the night of the movie's release. That's a good sign. (laughs) That's always a good sign. That, uh... Uh, for anyone curious, they play the theme song in full, complete with the second verse you didn't know was hiding on the left. <laughs> clever, <laughs> clever songwriting. Uh, in the film, just in case you couldn't tell that this was in. At what point? Like, in the when, beginning. When is it appropriate? Op- during the opening oh. credits. Just in case you didn't have the dreadful sense that you were watching little more than a bloated episode of the show. Unfortunately, um, the second verse is all in German and completely racist, which is why it was never involved in the first. But they went there 
Now, Very provocative. Now, uh, once this movie comes out, people get the chance to see it. I feel like the question, why does everyone hate Entourage, will almost answer itself. Because the movie is rancid. <laughs> uh, I would say up there with Hot Girls Wanted as one of the Ooh, most... Uh, now on Netflix. Now on Netflix as one of the most worthless excruciatingly cynical and stupid movies of the year um except one is real and one is fake although which one hard to say however uh what i do want to ask because i've noticed that entourage which was a fairly popular television show during its day i don't have the numbers to quote offhand but i believe it did some of it received some of hbo's best ratings millions at that time billions of people (laughs) watched the show um (laughs) It was, it was, you know, it was a fun bit of wish fulfillment about four kids from Queens who were out there living the Hollywood dream. It was a relatively popular show. It certainly had its critics, but uh, it was not. But it was no how to make it in America. Exactly. Uh, Wow. Nothing. (laughs) But it it wasn't, um, you know, it, 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 people seemed to enjoy it for what it was back then. Uh, I don't know if it was the cachet of HBO at the time leading into The Sopranos or whatever else the case might be, but people seemed to tolerate it. Now, when the movie begins on a yacht in Ibiza uh, with drama, looking at all the naked girls on deck and saying, I think I have to jerk it before we even get there. And Vince staring over the bow of the ship like a lobotomized Don Draper. It's clear that... Wait, they got Tom Stoppard to write the screenplay for this version? That's incredible. Lobotomized Don Draper. That's, That's pretty nice. Uh, I don't know where Tom Stoppard came from. I but just only the only the best jerk off references oh, okay. come from <laughs> like Stoppard. However, you realize even though six days have allegedly only passed between the last episode of the show and the beginning of the film, in reality, whoa, uh, what is it? It's it four years and I, more than that since the show was particularly relevant because it sort of ended uh, after its prime. Um, that the boys from. Queens Boulevard feel a little bit anachronistic as soon as they show up in this movie. It feels like they no longer belong to this world and the culture sort of left them behind. So my question to you guys and the question at the heart of the segment is, and I say this not as a defense of Entourage by any means, but really just out of a place of curiosity. Why does everybody hate Entourage now? And is it simply a matter of um, us living in a time defined by the Imperator Furiosas and Hillary Clintons <laughs> of the world, uh, where bros before hoes feels even more antiquated of a sentiment than it once did? Or is there something more complicated going on? Is there something about wish fulfillment shows not really having quite the same shelf life? What is it? Talk to me. Well, I, it's it's interesting that, I mean, it's been over for, what, four years? It ended in 2011. Mm-hmm. and. I guess it's a testament to how far we've come as society or, you know, the the things that we pushed against back when Entourage was uh, a show we tolerated and kind of rolled our eyes at, uh, you know, outrage. We'll actually discuss this later in the show, but thanks to the magic of Twitter and Facebook and those sort of platforms for rage, outrage, um, or general discomfort with the, the pop culture that we tolerate, I'm sure that's part of why we're uncomfortable mm. about Entourage coming back. Um, and all t- Entourage also started, you know, in 2004, uh, not, not too long after, 
you know, the 9-11 bounce back period. You know, I, we probably throw that around a little too much, but it's true. We all wanted to, we all wanted wish fulfillment. We all wanted really positive things, and that just looked glamorous. There's nothing wrong with that. People people really indulged in Entourage. Uh, and when Arliss wasn't going to be on TV, what else did we <laughs> oh, have? Oh, Arliss. <laughs> well, that's really interesting. I mean, so do you think that that if Entourage existed at a time where when the show was airing at a time where social media was as prevalent as it was today that it would not have had the same reaction where everyone couldn't join in on everyone's scorn um and was just sort of watching it in the privacy of their own homes on sunday nights and with you know half their brain on that it was a more hospitable environment for that show well we probably hear more people bashing entourage and feel bad about it yeah you could you could watch entourage in a vacuum not that you would have to hide your own feelings about it but that you wouldn't feel shamed by other people thinking that entourage was horrible you know we have colleagues that love entourage one in particular yes uh (laughs) but i don't need to name names here you could go find them on on twitter and whatnot but there are people out there who love entourage and then there are people who love to attack people on entourage um and and both parties frighten me but you wouldn't have that even in 2011 that you just wouldn't have the the attack dogs going after entourage and the bro ship and we are at a peak moment of or at least or at least a, a changing tide for for feminism and feminism and pop culture specifically these things are hot issues and entourage is coming at the weirdest worst time it would have been better as like a companion film for sex in the city like you mm. could have sold it as the other side of the coin around that same time should have launched them both then um but it feels so stranded now like it does feel like it's coming way late uh the other thing with entourage it's just overstayed its welcome right uh, the the show i i only really watched maybe the first season or two of entourage and even that was not in first run um i just couldn't give it the time of day because it was so broy, and it was the same story over and over and over again i will never forget watching this college humor video for the first time where they yes. made fun of <laughs> the pattern of entourage where it's vince making the movie oh the no vince on. can't make the movie yeah, well, the, the movie's, movie's off guys we lost the money wait it's back on vince is making the movie um <laughs> and it's just the same thing over and over again and you know what it really is like what david you've seen this film what the fuck is it about? Because I'm watching the trailers, and right. it just looks like, okay, Vince wants to make another movie. Allow but they might not have the mind. money. It's the joke. <laughs> it's the butt of the, its own joke. Allow me to blow your minds here. Guess what the movie's about? The movie's about I know Vince wants to direct. The movie's on, but wait. Suddenly the movie's off. <laughs> but wait. Then the movie's on. And oh then boy. they make the movie. The idea is that, uh, in short, uh, Ari becomes a studio head at the end of the television show. He is the only person irresponsible enough in Hollywood to green light an $100 million reimagining of Jekyll and Hyde for a first-time director, who is Vince, uh, in which Jekyll, Dr. Jekyll, turns into a gun-toting <laughs> DJ. Uh, <laughs> and, and somehow the movie uh. that they're making, Hyde, is not as bad as the movie that they're in. Uh, but that is essentially the part of the movie. They can't, they, Vince goes over budget, and so they need to turn to the investor, who's played by Billy Bob Thornton, and his uh, you know, imbecilic son who's played by Haley Joel Osment to get the money for it. He comes to LA. Haley Joel Osment does. He starts hitting on Emily Ratajkowski, who's playing herself, the girl from the Blurred Lines video on Gone Girl, uh, who's Vincent's. How do you vid- say her last name? Ratajkowski. I thought it was Tricky. No. Uh, and. Fair. No, no, no. You're thinking of somebody else. You're thinking of Emmanuel Shikri. 
Oh. Uh, Emily Ratajkowski, again, the girl from the Blurred Lines video, and Gone Girl is right. his new disposable girlfriend. Um, she doesn't even make it through the whole movie. Uh, not alive, but, you know. Uh, <laughs> okay, and, uh, and the movie really becomes a, a glorified advertisement and self-fulfilling prophecy for her fame. Uh, and it's really, really bizarre. There are no stakes. Anyway, we're getting off track. Dave, do you want to? Did you want to say something? Yeah, about- I was. I was going to say that Dave talks to a lot of men's rights activists, so I wanted to definitely hear. <laughs> <laughs> I also watched all of Entourage because uh, my roommate was into it at the time, and I, you know, it's everybody's get- old roommate's favorite show. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I became a completionist, sort of like I do with things, and really, I, Entourage is just one of those shows that got caught in it grasped on to the things it thought was good about its first season and it wasn't the things that were actually good about its first season and sort of blew those out of proportion and then became about those things what were the good things well like the the first time you go through that plot and vince is like an unproven ability it's about you know all these old friends sort of making a mark Wahlberg uh, parallel entourage and running around like hollywood in that sense the excess sort of feels a little more like pretty womanish forgivable or mm. you know is so but where it, when it's like that you know it's caught in the cyclical comedy structure season after season and it becomes people who are already ridiculously rich losing amounts of money that they don't care about and then like get back just callously while like continuing to treat women like objects and refusing to sort of learn through the progression of their lives, uh, their fictional lives on the show. It, it, it sort of like drilled itself into it this has, really dull show. It has but I no self-awareness. Isn't that no. the problem that like, it's not Mike judges entourage or it's not, they're not making chubby rain. Silicon Valley is falling into this same hole, just it seems to be pulling itself out for the, the end of its second season. But if that becomes the pattern, the same pattern of the first season, where there's all these like week to week stops, and then you know they pull it out with this great new invention at the end of the season, then that Silicon Valley right. is just the new entourage. But it should have an geeks. ebb and flow where it, like, it does dip its toes into the realistic... But- you know you dynamics know, of Silicon Valley or Hollywood. They should beat Bob Saget, or, but at some or point, or character they be evolution, like, which is what you'd hope from Mike Judge that he would contribute, as he has a way hmm. of like developing really strong characters without a lot of like things happening to them, like years and years of King of the Hill, where the characters were essentially the same, but they did learn from their decisions and slowly evolve over the seasons. Right. Uh, well, what's interesting is that Entourage is. First of all, the biggest difference between Silicon Valley and Entourage is that Silicon Valley is funny. It's amazing how far wit takes you, even if you're essentially telling the same story in a different milieu. Also, also a good point. But the, you know, Entourage is like the hide clips that we see in the Entourage film and like a lot of the references in the show are also in a very uncom- uncomfortable limbo between like Hollywood parody, Chubby Rain style, as Patch has said, or, or, uh, you know, really anything. I mean, it's it's like they don't want to be too inside baseball, but they want you to know that they have some sort of authority, which I guess is sort of like our show. But um, they, yeah, I don't know. I, well, I, think, I think the weird thing about Entourage, as we wrap up here, is that, that it's all about, or it seems to be all about emasculation. You know, like even, is and correct me if I'm wrong here, David, but isn't Eric's whole plot, Kevin Connolly's character, that he is having a baby or... 
Yes. Like he's gonna oh man, throw in the towel, you're gonna be a dad. Like so there's no way to manage that life. Sleeping with every so he's abandoned his pregnant girlfriend and is sleeping with every girl he can find, which builds to a, a plot thread that would be incredibly unrealistic by Sex in the City 2 standards. Um, and it's really sort of disturbing that the movie's least sincere moment. Uh, and this is, again, a Hollywood satire that makes Who Killed Roger Rabbit feel like a documentary, <laughs> is, is when they are trying to teach Eric to respect women. That's when the movie feels least sincere so this movie has a lot of problems yeah. <laughs> um, like the gay character is going to get married and Ari Gold goes ah right. and so Turtle fights a woman ah! he has to spend a hundred minutes convincing Ari to show up to his fucking wedding it's ridiculous. unbelievable <laughs> why, so why do people hate Entourage David uh, for a lot of reasons especially because and the thing is that it's like okay if you want to make Ari a homophobe that's one thing but Ari is not a homophobe and he also cares about his assistant and but they still decide that this is a valuable plot for the story. I mean, I, people hate Entourage because it's pretty. It's also I hate Entourage now because it was supposed to save the Rangers playoff season when they all went and saw it and then won the next game. And then Johnny Drama went to games five and seven and they got shut out at both of them. So fuck you, Entourage. at dinner earlier this week um and because small talk you gotta make it you gotta talk about something when you're eating dinner with a loved one so my girlfriend and i were talking about fighting in the war room what what are we going to talk about on the podcast this week um and better the better question was which game of thrones character would represent each of us on this podcast who are we (laughs) in real life um the hard-hitting questions so i have my answers but i asked you guys and I feel bad that Katie's not here because I'm sure she would have very sincere uh, throat-slitting answers for us. But uh, we'll we'll have to do without her. Do you guys have answers, or should I give you mine first? No, give you give you give us yours. All get right. me started. I don't want to inform you, so I hope you, uh, don't steal my answers. Okay. So, Dave, I think you're a Jamie Lannister type. What do you think? Oh. I'm not saying you fuck your sister. But if you had one, I think you, of all people, would just, like, go for it, maybe, if she was hot enough. Well, I mean, if we're in a place where incest is funny, then yes, okay. of course I would. But the, the real reason is I feel like you're always ready for battle. You just go into battle, whether you thought it through or not. It just seems like the right. you're ready for a good fight. So yeah. Jamie also no- notoriously famous for k- killing a king one time. And Did Marvel is common? coming at you to, to slay you at some point. <laughs> Everyone wants you dead on the internet. <laughs> Jamie They'll take Lannister. my hand. Katie, Katie, I think, is Arya Stark. I mean, just so pure. A great warrior. She's tough. And she can plot revenge every once in a while. Katie, Arya Stark. David, I was back and forth on you. Mm. Originally, I thought Tyrion. No, oh, come on. What do you mean? I thought that would be a compliment. <laughs> okay, fine. The thing, here's the thing. I should say this about all Game of Thrones comparisons. There's nothing good. You don't want to be any <laughs> sure. of these characters because there's something wrong with Tyr- all of Tyrion them. Tyrion is, you know, I think. But I'm not going to pick Tyrion. No. I'm not, I thought you have the wit, you have the sharp mind, but oh, I'm wow. really going to go with Littlefinger. 
<laughs> because I think you plot a little bit, and you're I ready do. to troll, and you're ready to rile people up. So wow. you're really a little finger. You're really a, a Cheney type. I don't. I don't. I don't. <laughs> Whisper. I don't think I've ever plotted anything in my life. Yeah, he's he he's not as bold with his opinions, so it was tough to figure out who. Right, who he he's, would be, he's much cagier. I I uh, have no patience for plotting. I just lay my cards out on the table. I just I thought I thought I'd go sharper than wittier with Littlefinger. Oh, wow. That's why. And for me, I'm Jon Snow. Obviously. Oh, naturally. I, I thought I was the guy <laughs> who gets murdered in the prologue in the pilot. <laughs> <laughs> You're the three-eyed raven, I think. <laughs> <laughs> or that huh. troll who had a lot of hair in the last episode. Mm. Um, no, you're not that tall. Dave, what about you? You're you're like a, we should plug Storm of Spoilers, your Game of Thrones podcast that you do on this feed, yada, yada, yada. You do a, you do a lot of Game of Thrones shit. What about your answers? Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like I could, like, should pick somebody really obscure for David, but I'm going to, I leave him for last and see if I can do it on the fly. Uh, Katie, I would put as Brienne, uh, definitely. Like, you know, fiercely loyal, keeps to her word, uh, you know, could be feminine if she wants to, but would but she rather fucks be up her audio files every once in a while when we do the podcast, so. Yeah, just like Brienne would. <laughs> uh, patches, you're going to be, uh, like, um, hmm. I'm going to say, I'm going to say Rob Stark. You have, he, a, you have the best dead. Yeah, well, you know, like you said, none of these can, you don't want to be any of these people. <laughs> Fair. But he admirably dealt with a you know situation that he was thrust into by the sudden death and someone loved parents. him in it's, the end. That was key. He was very honorable, and his only downfall was he loved too much. And in oh. that way, you are you are Rob Stark. <laughs> that is me. I'm like a teddy bear who died yeah. at the red wedding. And uh, although, uh, d- hmm, Tyrion's really good for David, but like, there's something I I guess. If we're not going to do that, I'm not going to put him as Littlefinger. I'm going to put him <laughs> as as the Varys, right? Oh boy! Because I I think you know slightly flustered by chaos, but understanding the importance of the realm. That would be that would be David. <laughs> who is who is your own pick? Who are, who is your personal avatar here? Oh, I think I would be the Littlefinger. Really. Mm. Yes, long gestating plans in opposition to David. I didn't realize you were so manipulative. Well, yeah. I, I guess that's the point. Yeah, well, well, welcome to the podcast, man. <laughs> I, I am going to, I'll be nice. I'm going to say that Dave is Oberyn Martell because Ooh. he's dark. They look a lot alike. <laughs> and yes. Oh, I've seen people with thing. him as their uh, Twitter avatar, and I keep thinking I'm looking at yeah, uh, Dave. No, it's more, that is more, such a compliment. Mostly a, 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 physical, a physical thing. Uh, I'll take it. Katie is. I'm gonna go. Hmm. Hmm. I think. Hold on. There was. I think I'm gonna go with Caitlin Stark. Caitlin Stark for Katie. Oh, that makes Caitlin. sense with the names. Not but just, she's dead too. Not just the name, but Katie, you know. I thought that they. Had they have a matriarch quality. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly on display in this podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, they both had to tolerate and fend off. All sorts of misbegotten male affection, like our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah! Sorry. Um, and for Patches, wow, this guy is really the limit. Um, it's <laughs> tempting to go with Samwell. That would be a compliment. I, I, I would won't. take that. I would go with Rob, but Patches has more of a sense of humor than Rob Stark. 
Um, I will settle for brawn for patches. Oh, wow, that's perfect. I, yeah. I do take that. I would definitely, if I was in jail, sing songs as I was dying of poison. I, I believe it. And what about you? Braun, What's if your, Braun what? and Bran somehow were able <laughs> yes. to combine, that would be that would be patches. Uh, and and you personally, now that we've oh, we've gone myself? back over all the manipulative characters for call, some reason, call Drogo naturally. No, I'm, oh, I jest. Yeah. I jest. Uh, let's see here. I'm looking over them now. Um, Loris. <laughs> Loris. Which one's Loris? He's the one that's uh, about to go on trial for for buggery. Oh, no. Uh, hmm. He's also a really good knight. They kind of gloss over that in the show, but he's like a solid knight and mm. does what he needs to for his realm. Just, you know, doesn't stay in the spotlight. What about that icy be. winter walker type? Who... <laughs> what, the, the, the dead guy? <laughs> yeah, I mean, but he is alive. He just seems kind of dead. He... Uh-huh. <laughs> Very powerful, though. I don't know. I guess I'd have to go with... Uh, I, I have to say, I do not think that I would be able to talk myself out of tight spots as well as Tyrion. But uh, I think other than that, uh, I, I would probably have to liken myself most to him. We, we all almost went there, so mm-hmm. a fair comparison. Well, I, I leave it to our listeners to, to weigh in here. I would laugh and laugh and laugh at your answers uh, on Twitter or Facebook or whatnot. So please, indulge us. So let's see if we can get through segment three without saying anything too incriminating. Um, yeah, I was about to say, we only talk about really sensitive subjects when Katie is not in the house. Yeah. I don't know why we do that. We're going to talk about Katie. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, okay. I, I want to bring this up without taking any particular position on it. Again, sort of like the Entourage segment, um, although I, I clearly came down on a certain side of the fence with Entourage, and I'm not going to do that here necessarily. Uh it's become clear to me with, with um, I don't know, talk about Ayn Rand with uh, Tomorrowland, talk about Emma Stone's character and her racial makeup in Aloha, that it seems that with every big film nowadays, uh, for better or worse, the conversation seems to have less to do with quality than it does with comparing the politics and worldviews and casting and whatnot of these films to our utopian ideal of our world and really just beginning with that and then chipping away at it to see what we find um and i feel like sometimes it's possible that the baby gets thrown out with the bathwater. i don't think that aloha is a particularly commendable film but there are a lot of interesting things that can be talked about that were not talked about and uh with with brad bird i feel the same goes with um the same, really, that's a particularly unfortunate example just because the conversation about uh, the, his, the Randian elements of his films, which are overstated. Now, Forrest Wickman wrote a very good piece dismantling that argument and clarifying it for Slate. If you have to go ch- check it out, perhaps Dave can throw a link to it on our website. Randian, um, Randian being Randy, Randy Quaid. 
Exactly. Yes. Uh, I can also throw a link to that Ayn Rand pamphlet just because it's a real cool piece of film history if you want to see what Ayn Rand had to write for the MPAA against communism. Whoa. I will Absolutely. also throw a few links to Randy Quaid clips that make me laugh. Uh-huh. Um, but I think that uh, something I struggle with just as a as a broader abstract question is uh, you know how we hold films to the fire for not reflecting our perfect worldview and how we've decided at some point that that is the responsibility of our entertainment. Now, of course, I wholeheartedly believe, and this is the same reason why uh, Caitlyn Jenner's outing on the cover of Vanity Fair and that whole thing is, is such a positive step forward outing. because, well, you know, self-outing or, or whatever you want to call it, uh, debut coming out in the, in the debutante sense. Um, debutante? Is, oh. <laughs> is so important is obviously because of its place in the culture and how it can help attitudes progress in a way that, um, you know, talking about them is very, is, is a valuable conduit. Uh, but the flip side to that is that you know, all of our entertainment then has to reflect a certain set of values. And I think uh, we and this can talk about Game of Thrones as well, which has almost in every episode this season been um, an issue about sexual violence yeah. and rape. And the golden age of television is crucifying every episode. Right. Until and it solves it <laughs> and every episode. choice that's made. And, and we're not going to make this segment about defending or attacking what they were doing in Game of Thrones, although I think all of us would probably defend it. But we're men. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that it is something that is lost in that is is that we are uh transposing our set of moral values over this mythical world where which is not to say that by any stretch of the imagination that rape is uh somehow to be tolerated in that place but simply to process that um sex and sexual you know non-consensual sex violence uh which you know rape being a crime of violence and not Sex is uh, is a currency. Violence and sex are both currencies in the world of Game of Thrones, and that there is there is not um, it does not behoove anyone simply to shut down, but rather to engage with the choices that are made. Anyway, uh, I I think that the risk in all of this is that we may jeopardize the creation and the discussion of movies that embrace morally ambiguous characters, and beyond that, not just protagonists who are. Um, of like, I don't know, the Don Draper variety, again, to go with the television show example, um, but worlds that are morally ambiguous, where characters um, are are not perfect and force you to, then films make choices that don't reflect necessarily the perfect, liberal, progressive fantasy that, you know, I sure. hope for for our world, but don't necessarily need reflected in all of my entertainment. I, th- I think, I think uh, there's two things here. Um... One, Just two things? There's only two things, and this will completely solve the problem. But, oh, I can't uh, wait. oh, sweet. Short um, segment. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> Number one, everyone has an ambition to talk about something deeper in a film, especially when the films that we see during the summer season seem to be so superfluous at times. You know, we, we want to get something out of all this entertainment. And Game of Thrones suffers from this because it is a plot-driven show, and a lot of our summer movies are just plot, 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 like filling in the gaps between giant set pieces. And when we dig for substance, you know, we, we, we hit the bottom, but we keep trying. And, and it can be, it can fall into that trap you're suggesting, David, where, where we start crucifying these 
pictures because we just want meaning. We just want something out of them. So they must be something. We must either have outrage or we must come down on them. The hammer must come down. But the other thing is, I, I was at the same dinner where I was comparing us to Game of Thrones characters. <laughs> I was thinking about reviews that we've done on this podcast where I feel like I've been trying to pick apart films or, or analyze them, talk about subtext, talk about theme. And you, David, have told me that I am bringing my own moral standards to the film and I'm not accepting what the film is doing. <laughs> Do you now, have particular examples? I uh, I don't know. Every time it happens, I just black out uh -huh. and I fall asleep. Well, I, I've <laughs> been thinking about Tomorrowland, especially because, like, why I, I have a problem with Tomorrowland uh, on a political level, obviously, but I, I do separate that from its um, entertainment problems, which are, are are the problems are rooted in its theme, in its ambition to tell a story about optimism. And I think we we end up blurring here when films start having problems about being didactic, uh, about the way they're talking about their own themes. They're lending themselves to poking our moral standards um so the discussion may sound like like i it may sound like i have a huge problem with the quote-unquote randian aspects of tomorrowland but what i'm really going after when i talk about it is the way it's explaining its thoughts that i'd be totally open to if they were portrayed in a thrilling dramatic way they're not connected to the drama mm -hmm. and when you have that sloppiness uh, it's easy to go after kind of ambitious ideas or ideas off-center from where you stand politically, morally, whatever. Um, so I, I do go back to the movies as well. Like this is this is a this is an audience problem. We have a problem watching movies and and wanting everything to be sa the same. But I think the movies also have a problem. Hmm. See, I think that you raised the the question that I meant to get at with the segment, which is. Um, and this is a trap that I find myself falling into a lot, um, not necessarily on political grounds, but more on sort of metaphysical grounds, on seeing movies and, and contorting them in your head so that they reflect your worldview or celebrating and cherishing the ones that happen to and resisting the ones that don't. And I do think you, that that is see, sort of the eternal push and pull with art. Do you see... Does a conservative-minded movie come to mind that you've enjoyed in recent years? One does for me, the direct-to-DVD film Jarhead 2. Uh, it's oh, about wow. the military. It's about, like, killing jihadists and shit, and it's a little rah-rah America. But it's actually pretty contemplative in that way. Like, it's clearly geared towards military fiends, but it's reasoned, and it makes cases, and it's ambiguous in parts. Um, and this is a direct-to-DVD action movie. Well, I think that... that <laughs> Sequel to Jarhead, for Christ's sake. I think that and it's highlighting uh, military films, particularly recent ones, um, that and ones that are not sort of retro retroactively and retrospectively um, critical of wars like the v you know, films about Vietnam, uh, but films that sort of reflect more contemporary conflicts... Uh, things like American Sniper or even something like Black Hawk Down. Um, now, see, Black Hawk Down, I think, is a fascinating example because it's, I think it's super pro-military and it's very, it, it turns, you know, the classic quote or paraphrasing that every war film is a pro-war film. I think uh, Black Hawk Down is what Truffaut was anticipating when he said that. Um, 
because the action is phenomenal and it is, uh, you find yourself sort of being a little rah-rah violence about it. But then on the flip side of that, you have that um, putrid piece of shit that Mark Wahlberg made last year, Lone Survivor. Lone Survivor. Um, which is yeah, one of the, yeah. I, I mean, every time um, Wahlberg's name comes up, yeah, it's <laughs> one of, one of my least favorite films of the last few years. And I, th- it, it doesn't espouse a particularly different message. Uh, I think it's a little bit more, uh, particular about that war being just that conflict and that just the, the goodness of American soldiers and all, all of, uh, all of that. But I, I think the main difference for me, what separates Lone Survivor from Black Hawk Down is that Lone Survivor is inept craft wise it's uh it's chaotic and, and may not have you know it maybe it reflects the lack of poetry of armed conflict in the forests of afghanistan i honestly wouldn't know um well but, it's not good but cinematically like, that's, it's, it's not as it's not as engaging and it, i think it's because of that it certainly it's politics and how they differ from mine or how i interpreted their politics to be uh, becomes more of a problem for me. Uh, I mean, it, a lot of this to take the the audience's side for a little bit, maybe even just hypothetically, but we'll see what I roll into with this. Like, uh, we have we're at an age where it's so easy to make your opinions known, and television shows and movies are becoming extreme versions of what they used to be to either appeal to everybody or to get them talking about it or just to get more viewers. Uh, and ad dollars and what have you. So isn't the natural reaction from a society to become sensitive to, like, define the boundaries when things like, you know, The Walking Dead has basically done away with gore on television and Game of Thrones has always, you know, included a certain degree of sexual violence and these things have all since, like, you know, I guess since the Sopranos era, since we were talking about that earlier in the show, definitely since then. Uh, you know, television and movies have gotten sort of uh, more extreme and purified to sort of break through the noise of just how many of them there are. Isn't the natural audience, re- like, respectable response to be, to give, uh, I don't know, to get kind of pissed off when things yeah, but maybe abuse other, those boundaries? I think the other thing is that we're looking for propaganda. You know, we want to embrace these gigantic vehicles that get lots of exposure week to week or you know month to month we want a beacon for our issues so if we can see them in a picture then we will champion it and we want that to be a propaganda film for feminism or for liberal thought or Mm. for conservative thoughts you know american sniper became you know if you didn't like american sniper you were going against conservative thought or, 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 or I, military appreciation i was at a, a quick interlude just to confirm your story and i was at a wedding uh in new jersey and the person next to me asked me what i did for a living and i said oh i'm a film critic and they i said did you like american sniper and immediately in my head i was like you are clearly somebody who was served and i am uh, this is gonna be a very loaded answer and I looked at him and I was like, um, I, I did not, but I certainly respect those, those who did. And uh, it was my very, my various answer, I suppose. And it turned out that he was a sniper in Afghanistan. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, I, I don't know if, uh, this is not to suggest that he was incapable of engaging with the, the merits of the film or lack thereof, or that I 
was any better off than he was. But but I do think that he, as Patches is saying, uh, engaged with the movie as propaganda first because it conscribed his worldview and gave him a, a sense of legitimacy for his own action. Well, here's the thing. It's like, ultimately, isn't that fine? You were two people that both saw the movie and had, you know, different opinions about it. Isn't, isn't that the goal? Like, Well, he tried to it's... murder me afterwards. Right. Oh, okay. But it doesn't but, like, feel that way when you're talking about it with people who are invested in the issues of the film. I think that's part of the problem. If you, if you demand that a movie becomes propaganda for the ideas that it dabbles in, then you're either against it or for it, and you can't see the nuance and what it's accomplishing, and you may not even be able to appreciate the filmmaking on display. But, I mean, isn't some of this also just the time of history that we're at and the fact that we have our heads in this loud echo chamber where people are going to say something about a movie, even if there's nothing really to say about a movie? Well, because it seems something. like, you know, we could we could have been having this argument about, you know, the new Hollywood of the 70s you, or, you know, integration of You do want to say film. something about American Sniper's politics. Like, you can't avoid that. Um, and I think Zero Dark Thirty really tests people in that way. Like, there's serious politics going on in right, the and film, I'm, and it's about this kind of ambiguity of which I'm really glad you go, that you what ideology do you do? Zero Dark Thirty up, because that actually reminds me of another film where, well, this may have been something we talked about in a prior episode, and if you have me saying that on your bingo card, please drink. Uh, but <laughs> Wolf of Wall Street, which, you know, the conversation around that film was so much about whether or not uh, Martin Scorsese endorsed his characters, if he if he's a you know, was in some way championing what Jordan Belfort did, which um, he categorically was not, because, I mean, this is uh, <laughs> not rocket science. I won't get into that. But um, uh, but it was interesting to me that so much of people's opinion about the movie seemed to be hinging on the fact that whether or not it was, uh, it, they that, that they would be unca- incapable of making that determination for themselves, and that it became a moral enterprise. And I suppose that if all films are political in some way, then I guess all films are also moral in some way or immoral um but it it, and i don't i just i wonder if it's possible to extricate that reaction from your appreciation of the film if if there's someone out there who well that would be the question he was to both of you but still enjoyed it I'm, i'm just curious about how you go beyond that so if i did have a moral problem with the behavior of Jordan Belfort or of, of the content well, of the movie. You should have a moral problem with yeah. behavior of Jordan <laughs> okay. Belfort. No, I actually really love uh, midget bowling or whatever they do. That's that. offensive. I'm sorry. I just, it's toss who I am. Um, <laughs> little people toss it. <laughs> little people toss it. Well, I'm just saying, like, how do you divorce it? Like, you're, you're saying that we should, um, but do you think it's really possible or that? I'm or not, or I mean, should people? Well, don't who's who's wait? Who's we in that sentence? Is it like the filmmakers, the, the audiences, or the critics that are supposed to like help translate? Well, I think what David's saying, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's like leave your baggage at home when you go see a movie and open yourself up to it at all times. But is that even possible? I mean, I know that you have no moral standards. No, I, I don't want to. I don't want to <laughs> argue on fa- in favor of that statement Listen, necessarily I don't think that you at all. Leave your baggage at home because I think that. Part of what makes all art interesting is what we bring to the table. I mean, this is a dialogue between a work and this audience. Um, I I do feel like deciding that something is immoral and deciding that it is therefore a bad film um, is not a helpful way necessarily to interpret something. I, I, you know, I, I... 
Go, Dave, what were you going to say? Oh, I mean, there's just, there's, I don't want to argue about leaving, uh, like, your personal feelings at home, because, like you said, it's such an integral part of experiencing all art, and I think definitely film. I just wouldn't, I mean, like with everything that even isn't movies, it's hard to judge based on another person's opinion. So, like, if you have also seen Mad Max, and you genuinely were offended you know that max wasn't the protagonist maybe i'm interested in your opinion i don't want to like necessarily say that there's bad readings of films and i think that what we're getting is just an amplification idiot uh, amplification issue because there's always been this many people who are you know stuck in a different or uh, minority or unpopular way of thinking uh it's just now we hear from them and they're being engaged with by more intelligent people. And it seems like this yelling match, but I think it's a yelling match worth having just in the long view of history. Like it might be worth losing an American sniper or a, you know, exceptionally good blockbuster every few years in the, in the wash. If, you know, we're able to revive it later after never the okay actual to, conversation has been had. Never okay to lose an American sniper. But um, it's, well, I mean, it's not, go- it's not going away. But l- let me ask you this. Let me ask you this. Yeah. Do, do any movies, both of you, come to mind where you feel like you you cut your teeth on on being exposed to something that would to, that would rattle you, that would really take you out of this comfort zone that people seem to be stuck in from David's perspective? I you know I don't think I'd be as open minded as I am today, or at least that I think I am, if I wasn't like growing up watching Michael Haneke films or Mike Lee films. You know, I saw him naked at a at a. F- affordable age uh and i i saw i you know vera drake is a, is a, a button pushing film from mike lee i don't know these these films shape you or unshape you from the ideas that you already have about the world is it that people aren't seeing these films or then they're not making them what what, what films come to mind for you guys Has i been anything well, that's ever rattled you I'm not I'm not sure that rattle is the correct word but I was thinking about this today with the Caitlyn Jenner Vanity Fair cover is that uh, when I go back and rewatch 6 Feet Under like recently like all the David homosexual plot things feel really like Who has broad the time and, to go back and rewatch 6 Feet Under? I'm I mean, you know, occasionally it's a good oh, I own the box set. You got to you got to make up for all the money you spent on the box set by actually watching it. Anyway, but like I've, the the David homosexuality plots to feel like sort of broad and predictable because at the time they're revolutionary, but now society is so far beyond that that it actually makes those parts of the show less enjoyable for me. Although at the time it was really powerful because it was really close to my brother having just come out, and it was very important to me that the world you know see a gay man learn to love himself and be who he is. But like now that we're approaching this whole age where, you know, we're having some LGBT support in the mainstream media, you know, all of a sudden things like the crying game is going to get more offensive and all the press about the crying game is going to get retroactively more offensive. Just like reporting on, you know, black vaudeville got more offensive just because of the time. I don't think that this is necessarily something that's, damaging people's interaction with movies. I think it is people's interaction with movies. Uh, you know, something that really rattled me was United 93. Um, and I, I don't know if this fits into our conversation necessarily, but I wrestled, you know, that movie well, was... Well, Too Soon is a often <laughs> No, heard, uh, no, Too Soon <laughs> was no part of my reaction, but 
um, I did struggle with the value of making that film um, and what it was trying to accomplish because, uh, and, and I think why I brought it up, you know, relative to this conversation is because I found it immensely affecting, even though um, mentally I couldn't necessarily reconcile why. Uh, on a visceral level, it was one of the, if not the most horrifying experience I've ever had in a movie theater. I was completely shaken. Um, and, you know, I think for understandable reasons, uh, and still would not be able to summon a clear answer as to whether or not I think that movie needed to be made or what its value was um, as a historical document, as a work of fiction, as a, you know, a for-profit entertainment. Um, I really struggle with that. And, uh, but I, I, and, you know, I think it would be a shitstorm if it came out now. Um, just with... Uh, right now? It would be- no, no, no. Just because, you know, social media didn't exist back then. Um, not like it does now, but just yeah, with th- Entourage. Right. Uh, yeah, but I think Entourage is... Well, I will not compare Entourage to 9-11. I will not compare yeah. Entourage to yeah. 9-11. <laughs> I'm writing it on the blackboard of my desk as I speak. Uh, but, the, yeah, so that's, that's, a, that's a prime example for me. Um, it is not, you know, a little bit of uh, a talking piece. It is not... It doesn't fit as neatly into the conversation of propaganda, something like Aloha or, or Tomorrowland does. I can't just get on a soapbox and say it was wrong to cast Emma Stone as someone who's a quarter of uh, Chinese, um, just because it's it's something to foam over at the mouth. That um, is kind of a conversation I'm itching to have. But uh, but like, yeah. when does that when is that allowed in your mind to become? offensive to someone or my real my real kind of wrap-up question here was if you guys have ever seen a movie that you would deem offensive in any way well i know dave always wants to bring up a serbian film but i don't think dave <laughs> a, a serbian film is offensive no i, mean, I don't I it's just entourage, another chill night the entourage movie is offensive to me um what was the uh the kevin james adam sandler gay marriage movie that was offensive now I, I now pronounce you Chuck yeah, and Larry. I didn't see that. That one. Uh, that was offensive. The you ever see Uwe Bull's Postal? That no. one's that one's teetering on the but edge. But is something is something that's such an obvious provocation capable of being offensive? I mean, Entourage right. is offensive to me because it's so cravenly cynical. I mean, it's so witless. It's so lazy. Um, it was made for thirty million dollars with points in the back end for everybody involved. It's the only thing that helped the movie up was contract negotiations, and everyone's going to make a fortune off of vapor. That's offensive to me. Um, I mean, no, no, I hate the two things for the exact same reason, which is that they're very obviously representing something that I don't agree with, and they're big enough movies that several people had to think this was a good idea, so they're all idiots. Mm. Like, there's certain things that shouldn't be greenlit. The f- like, there are, I think. There are, you know, something like, to go the racial route off the top of my head, something like Memoirs of a Geisha, which is a masterpiece of production design, is offensive, mm-hmm. um, because, you know, and not just because they cast uh, Chinese women in Japanese roles. I mean, that's just not, uh, you know, it's not, that was not done out of mockery uh, in the way that it has the same origins as blackface. It was uh, done for money. 
and it was done for convenience. And I am not engaged in that particular conflict, though I certainly respect where people are coming from who are upset about it. But I thought the way the film dealt with the emotions of its characters, in addition to its depiction of these various races, was uh, various nationalities rather, was offensive. Um, That's interesting. But, and, uh, and yet you didn't have a problem with The Wind Rises like many... Uh... Well, The Wind Rises, I think, is the opposite. Of, I think The Wind Rises... I was offended by those who were offended by The Wind Rises, genuinely. Um, and I can only overstep my bounds so much because, again, there are people who... You know, you, you want to defer to people who have a claim to certain offenses. You don't want to be in the white knight position. You don't want to be overstepping your bounds. But oftentimes people are are too close uh, to certain things. I think I feel this way about my own heritage. I'm, I'm never offended, for instance, by things regarding Jewish people. And, You're not offended and, by Watto in The Phantom Menace. <laughs> I, I am not, but I'm, sometimes I wonder if maybe I should be. If you I'm may. sort of a nerd to it all, that it's just, I'm like, yeah, whatever. But you know, that's the thing. That's why someone would be offended by The Wind Rises, that they are closer. Is that wrong? Well, is, or what is I, that yeah, what not I'm saying being is close like, enough? Yeah, maybe. I mean, who knows? But... Uh, no, I, I I was actually really ticked off by people who were I know, but I, I thought that was it is nothing to do with I did, I felt like it had to do with a misreading of the film um, more than it did there and this is a, a complicated argument we don't need to get to now but less to do with like where you come from and what angle you're representing and more just what the text was that was involved and what you were extrapolating from it uh, but no I I am not uh, I'm offended by what I perceive to be idiocy a lot of the times but not necessarily <laughs> offended by no, certainly. I don't. I don't know if that's cool. I don't know if that's kosher, if you will. Uh, Offended by idiocy. But I do that's struggle. I really, I really do struggle with the idea that uh, I'll go see a movie, like a like a pigeon sat on a branch reflecting on existence, for example. The the worldview, the approach to religion, which there isn't one, uh, in Roy Anderson's trilogy, these things correspond to how I see the world. They have, in some way, helped shape how I see the world over the. 14 years he's been making them um but they certainly correspond to it and i wonder how responsible that is for how much i love those movies if it's because like oh he has found a way to articulate my philosophy and uh perhaps deepen it in its own way and that's what i respond to and what disservice is that doing to movies that I mean, I, all movies don't have to be all things to all people. I mean, like, it's perfectly fine right. that I have my movies and you have your movies, and that's great. Uh, but I wonder sometimes if I have misread movies by trying to contort them to mean something more to me, or if I have, um, which can sometimes make for the best readings of films and sometimes the worst, or if I have not enjoyed movies that I've not given myself the opportunity to enjoy movies because they haven't dovetailed enough with how I see the world, and I Constantly. struggle to reconcile them. I, yeah. um, I, I want to pile on that really quick because he just made me, David just made me think that, like, if I do have this sort of bias, either as an audience member or as a critic, it's that if something, if I catch on to a theme or something plot-wise that the movie's doing that I have really strong emotions about, my my attention span on the other craft parts of making film sort of sort of goes away. That works sometimes in the positive or the negative. I could be swept away, or I could just be so hmm. completely against the movie that it like even if it pulls off something amazing, technically I'll miss it. I I think I've only seen one movie that I've had true outrage that truly offended me this year: San Andreas. <laughs> totally offensive, and I find it offensive because it's like why why do I have to watch this destruction anymore. 
<laughs> you know, I, I that's what offends me in movies. It offends me that it, it to be gross, to be pointless, to not vindicate yourself through the film that you're making. If you're going to do this disaster movie, if you're going to destroy what we know of and evoke real terror of the world, real tragedy around the world for our entertainment pleasure, why? Why are you doing this? And if you can't answer the question why, then I'm offended by it. And most movies at least have an answer to that question. And I think San Andreas fails miserably. Ooh, asterisk see last week's podcast. Yeah. There you go. Did we solve um, problematic problems? Did we solve problematic? We did it! That's it for this week's Fighting in the War Room. I don't know if we're going to be back with a review or not. David, you and I both saw Spy, but we'll have to figure out if there's a lot to talk about. You eat Roseburn, the Roseburn experience. Guy, I love Melissa McCarthy. It's her show, no matter what it you say about show, the, the Roseburn. Amazing. We, we enjoyed this movie very much, but who knows if we'll get a chance to review it. Uh, we're waiting for a movie with true substance. Something to be offended by. Then we'll talk. Um, until then, why don't we tell the people who we are, starting with me. I'm Matt Patches. I am the senior writer at Esquire. I am on the Twitter at Mr. Patches, and we have a website, fightinginthewarroom.com, where you can tell us which Game of Thrones characters we represent and uh, or share this episode, leave comments, do anything, fightinginthewarroom.com. I'm David Ehrlich. I'm the associate film editor of Time at New York and the editor at large for Little White Lies magazine. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at David Ehrlich. You can find all of us, including Katie Rich, when she decides to check in from the bottom of the Grand Canyon on Facebook at Fighting in the War Room. I'm Dave Gonzalez. I spell out first name DA7E, which is also my Twitter handle. I write about superhero movie news and spoilers at latino-review.com, stuff at geek.com, and things at forbes.com. I also do a podcast called The Storm of Spoilers, and Game of Thrones had maybe its best episode of the series this week, so stay tuned for that on Thursday. Uh, you can also find us as a show collectively on Twitter at FITWR, where you can answer this week's lightning round question, where you get to pick your favorite silly movie title. So please tweet back us with us at those. Uh, tweet at FITWR with those. Man, I'm screwing this up. Katie Rich, please come back from the Grand Canyon. We need you desperately.